2: is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. When we left off the conversation in part one it quite quite neatly sort of stopped just before you you got married and you uh you left for australia so f- just for our listeners who haven't perhaps had the opportunity of reading that second volume uh time flies two t double can you fill us in on on what that actual what that process was like
3: it was pretty simple once i decided to do it i um I did it and, mm. and doing it was uh, involved uh, resigning from the company that i'd worked with for 13 years which was most of my adult life and talking to my you know ex-wife and uh, and my children and packing suitcases and um and then in typical you know, virgin style richard through this enormous party um, it was done with such style and thoroughness that one could almost suspect uh, it was welcome. <laughs> but it was, a party, it was a party to say goodbye, and it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I mean, it was if you're going to say goodbye to a country and to a company and to people who have been dear to you uh, for all those years, then that's the way to do it you know invite everyone you know that you're still talking to and hope that somebody will pay the bill and thankfully they did.
2: And so you're still in contact with Richard Branson right?
3: Yes yeah yeah we I mean when he comes to Australia we see each other and when he doesn't come to Australia we we correspond occasionally.
2: Uh, That must be you know because you were an important part of Virgin's success and, and certainly it's the way it broadened uh, uh, into film, you, you know, you were a key a key figure there. I
3: think I was a balancing agent. I, I think one of William's great skills in uh, employing people, for the most part, was that there was no uh, model for the perfect employee. Um, it was all about creating a team of people all of whom had disparities in some ways, but whose desires for the company and uh, uh, hard work and uh, self-application um, was unswerving. So mm. it, it, it was. It, it turned out to be a very good team of people without it having I think any conscious design behind it
2: how did you see the film so you're going on to this new adventure in Australia and how how did you see the film industry as 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 was in Australia at that time I mean it's um with some notable exceptions it it it's not you know as bubbling maybe as as, as the one you were leaving
3: it felt A little procedural i mean one one is always appreciative of 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 any kind of government or or tax incentive that enables films and and television to be made but i just i I found that uh in any situation in which the process is is kind of formalized and uh applications are made uh, and of course boxes get picked both literally and metaphorically that there can be a a slightly mechanical air to the process and that lighting a fire underneath yourself is really one of the the things that, that one of the driving forces of making movies and then lighting it under a few other people as well. So I... um, I mean, curiously, one of the first things I, I did on, on arrival was attend a, a conference on the Gold Coast, where a lot of uh, producers, especially, attended. And um, yes, I, I just I felt there was a there, there was a great kind of optimism and buoyancy, but I, I felt that. Um, it was a little procedural as well.
2: You're able to bring in a sort of outsider's view and and sort of disrupt the scene to some degree. What were the first projects that you started working on when you got to Australia? Did you have something already to sort of step into as soon as you got there?
3: No, I joined a company because um, around the time I, I was getting married, I met all the principals and I decided to marry them. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I I decided to join this company, which assured me that part of its 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 intent in the late 1980s was to make uh, movies as well as uh, television. They were already doing television, and I was reluctant to move into that field, which has never interested me particularly. Um, except, you know, the more esoteric stuff. But as a whole, it's film on which I felt informed uh, on, on, at that stage on, on a world scale and film which I felt was the missing element in, in the company. And clearly they did too. So uh, they, they asked me to, um, to join them specifically to develop and and eventually produce uh, movies for for, for theatrical release, and yeah, it was it was a uh, it, it it sounds a little like a kind of fishing expedition, but I was uh, I was sufficiently familiar with the Australian directors whom I thought were were of interest or could become so, and so I just met them all basically. Mm. Uh, there weren't that many. But uh, there was a whole sequence of them who, one by one, uh, visited me, or I them. And I felt by the end of that, that I was educated in, in who they were,
2: and what the aspirations were one of the the pleasures of reading your the second volume of of your autobiography is that you're meeting a lot of these australian stars uh, and specifically the acting talent as well oh, although also directors andrew dominic for instance is is someone who, who makes his debut film with you who uh, don't uh, yeah who who are who aren't stars yet and so you sort of see them coming up and see that progress happening. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Guy Pierce in uh, Priscilla, uh, making the step from television into movies. Uh, Russell yeah. Crowe, of course, also as an early an early film with you.
3: Yeah, well, jo- George really, uh, ident- George Ogilvy, who directed um, the Crossing, which was the first film I did in Australia, really found Russell. Uh, well, he he and and the casting director. Uh, Faith Martin had him on a a, a list and he showed up late one afternoon with uh, a partially missing tooth, knocked them all out. So George called me that evening and said, I I think I found uh, one of the three leads for The Crossing because the the three lead actors were all young and Mm -hmm. uh, probably uh, little known and so um he had found two of them already and the missing one was in a way the crucial one because he 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 helps generate the conflict and um and and russell just immediately uh well
2: generated the conflict it's <laughs> yeah. He's absolute. Yeah, I, mean, I was wondering as well because the crossing Priscilla, they're all these. They're all quite ensemble films. And there's a, a film you do later on that you refer to as a sort of Priscilla with heterosexual guys. Is, do you think that's maybe a, a feature of sort of Australian cinema? You don't have a one big star that you can sort of carry a film, so you have to you, you tell more ensemble stories.
3: Well, if the if the star's character name is in the title, mm. as in Mad Max. You need one, or one who's going to become one pretty quickly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> or else no franchise for you. <laughs> right. But yes, I I, I I wouldn't say that there was any particular conscious attraction for an ensemble in, in this case. But it's set in a, in a small town. The three characters, uh, all of them in their late teenage years, who uh, who create the combustion that leads to the fire, as it were. So you you know you you have to unless somebody is carrying the film through their personal charisma, you actually need to uh, to look as broadly as that and and think about the 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 symmetry and the chemistry and and the compatibility
2: so after the crossing and you come into doing priscilla uh which is the i was interested w- to read about the making of that because it's always interesting to read about a success which uh, nobody really knows is going to be a success and and how how all this all the um elements that you think of or I think of as a viewer as being sort of nailed on such as Terence Stamp's performance for instance are actually the, the end product of a long process of trial and error and that he was a particularly difficult role to cast uh, the 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 role of Bernadette I should say
3: yes well we knew that from the start that it would it would be difficult to cast that role because it requires an actor of a certain age and actors of that certain age are often more comfortable with doing whatever it is they've been doing for their acting careers up to that point. It was Terence who, who decided that he was he was ready for it, or at least a friend of his who persuaded him that he was and he he threw himself right right into it it was uh, extraordinary because Terence was a very kind of masculine presence when you saw him in his in his london environment there was uh, you know apart from his you know his great beauty as a young man there was it was a very yeah it was a, a man who wore brogues rather than um, tennis shoes <laughs> that kind of.
2: I mean, you quite rightly point out that that you'd sort of seen something in him in in terms of also the Pasolini uh, movies that he was in a theorem that, you know, there is is even at the height of his fame in the 60s, an ambivalence or an ambiguity to his. um...
3: Well, he was he was so incredibly handsome Mm. and he was photographed like a god. If you look at even his um, his little known American Western blue. In which i i think he replaced uh robert Redford. he's uh his hair is dyed blonde and improbably he plays a, a half mexican but when the camera is on him you it it practically defies you not to pay attention there are many actors for whom that is not the case so he he had been he had been kind of canonized in a way as a as a young man which made his his practical disappearance in the 1970s in other words after that burst of fame that Began with you know, Far From the Madding Crowd and and uh, Billy Budd and and so on. There was a long gap until he then later in the 70s appeared in Superman, which gave him a, a new kind of lease of life as a as a screen villain. But um, the fact is that he was uh, he was perfect, and uh, when he stepped off that plane from Hawaii. And told me he had had every hair plucked from his body. I thought, now there's a guy who knows how to get off to a good start.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I also love the fact, in sort of an alternative universe, that you offered Brian Brown the part because, uh, oh, yeah, Brian Brown is like for my generation, is the Italian, sorry, the Australian well, actor, well, you know. Well, Uh, It's, um, we had such
3: fun with Priscilla. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think the film ended up giving as much pleasure as it did, is that we were having such a great time uh, from the start, long before we started shooting it. We treated it all very lightly, uh, because the film was going to be made very cheaply, and therefore that... Uh, weight of responsibility that corresponds to a film's cost (laughs) was kind of absent in our case. We managed to make pleasure out of everything, even the the knockbacks and the the difficulties and so on. And one of the things that I, I most enjoyed as I was writing was remembering vividly what how we turned obstacles into amusement, how we turned uh, potential catastrophes into opportunities. And I don't think any of us had or will ever do anything that was so seamlessly strange and pleasurable
2: again. And the fact that you actually appear in the film as well, or a part of you, does yes,
3: indeed. And uh, I, I also have a, a, f- a photograph which I, I would hesitate to put up to the screen um, of me in drag with with you know really kind of beautiful legs and in the middle of, of the desert. That is because when um, when we did the location survey. The cinematographer and Stefan Elliott, the writer, director, and I took some drag with us because we thought that if we came across a really great location and we wanted to bring back evidence of that really great location, what more persuasive evidence could there be than... um, than three guys in drag so we took it and we found the spot uh towards the end of our recce in alice springs and we uh we we slipped into our, our outfits in the middle of nowhere uh, but the middle of nowhere thankfully was quite near a road and then when brian breeny the cinematographer had set up a shot on his wide lux camera we then stopped a passing vehicle and this completely bewildered backpacker emerged and we just said press that shutter when i get back to that hill over there and sure enough we ended up with this absolutely wonderful photo of the three of us without any actors yet even notionally in the film who represented the movie I don't think there's any, be, been any um, greater symbolic engagement from a producer, a cinematographer, and a writer a director than being the characters just for the sake.
2: Of showing people, <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what this is the spirit of it. You know, these aren't yeah. going to be the well, actual actors, but this is what it's going to feel like. And of course, you take that to Cannes. And I'm, I'm one of the sort of, um, for me, one of the delights of reading your book is to see another side of Cannes because I I visit Cannes as a journalist and as a critic uh, and and interviewing people and what have you. But seeing it from your side as a as a producer who's the, going there to sort of set up a project like Priscilla. And and then bring a project, a film, to the festival. Um, uh, it, it, it's it's a it's a really exciting sort of backstage view of, of the festival.
3: Yeah, well, we were lucky because the first time we went to Cannes with it, it was just mentioned as a as a footnote because Stefan's first film, Broads, which was produced by my wife, Andrea Finlay, uh, was in competition. But already Priscilla was starting to cook. And so we we had an opportunity of mentioning it then. But by the time we got to Cannes, before we started shooting the film, we already had um, Polygram on board. Polygram was a a very, very important European uh, film entity at the time, as well as being all the other things that people know. And they enabled us to have the kind of profile that a low-budget movie uh, have, normally doesn't get. There, we, you know, we financed the trip uh, a bit ad hoc, but we knew that once we got there, they would look after us, as it were, and uh, and they did. So the, the the preparation for the film, the casting of it, the um, the the, uh, kind of absurd kind of dance that existed uh, when we were casting Jason Donovan and or Rupert Everett and so on was all conducted in circumstances in which we were quite secure. We felt that the film was going to be made, that Polygram would Finance it or part finance it. And so that anxiety, which usually corrodes an independent producer at Cannes, was absent in our case because we felt very grounded. And again, the spirit of fun eclipsed the spirit of anxiety.
2: And that went all the way through, so that when you're actually presenting the film, uh, there was a there's a brilliant story about you want, there's an inflatable Arnold Schwarzenegger and you want to put, <laughs> put him, dress him in drag, like go out in the middle of the night and uh, dress him up. <laughs> <I know. laughs> well, it was just, there was so much
3: mischief in the air and we just felt as if we could really enjoy ourselves and that in a way the... Um, how well we made the film might be dependent on on keeping this kind of buoyancy in in motion, and so it proved to be because when we eventually got around to it whilst it was it was difficult in all the usual ways and and many unusual ways as well, it was um. You know that that spirit never left it.
2: Absolutely, I love I love the story that you say of Stefan keeping the cameras rolling while there's a costume malfunction in the opening number, and that sort of stays yeah. in the film. It's not it's not meant to be there, but it, it works perfectly. It's kind of like a, a, a superb introduction to the to the characters in the situation.
3: It was um, really everything just came together in a, in a remarkable way that that is is um, as everyone will attest very unusual in the film business even the 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 Abitunes that we used that was a last minute thing as well because polygram had just signed them and and it suddenly access became very uh, possible in order just to ask because they they were they had been for quite some time uh, such a huge band and you know, not everyone got a chance to
2: ask them anything, <laughs> yeah. But in a way, I mean, uh, Priscilla was kind of ahead of the wave because, um, that real the the the, the stratospheric sort of heights of their sort of re emergence, uh, was not upon us yet. You know, we, we Mamma Mia was, was far in the future. Um,
3: well, Mamma Mia, no, Mamma Mia had, had already been a hit once, but what wasn't known until Priscilla was the fact that as you put it there was another wave of Abba to come yeah and um, as and and yeah, I mean, we never, we didn't. So they weren't around or anything, you know. It wasn't, you know, Benny. What did you think of that tape? <laughs> <laughs> None of that, I can assure you.
2: <laughs> I, I imagine they would have been scared to be around because they would have been able to go to the toilet without a worry that someone was going to pop in and <laughs> jar jar a memento. Know. Yeah. That
3: is that that the my contribution to the script I'm I'm immensely proud of, which was a a story about, that I had heard and and yeah occasionally you can tell a story when you're you know driving around a country just exploring, and it can set the imagination alight. Mm. And the story was was one that I I had heard about somebody who when Abba were in Australia previously. They did a tour here in the in the nineteen seventies. That there was some kind of a boat cruise in, in Perth, and one of the um, one of the guests, a, a young man, had gone into the the toilet. Uh, as Agnesa came out of it. And um, discovered that, uh, as the film put it, she had left a little present for him. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he bottled it and um, and had it on his his mantelpiece. That is fan
2: craziness <laughs> yeah, absolutely like a relic of a saint <laughs> yes, exactly. A, a piece of the true cross
0: <laughs> um, so,
2: and, and, and yet yeah, I mean you said earlier about Mad Max becoming a franchise but Priscilla's kind of becomes a franchise because the spin-off musicals uh, go all the way you know continue to this day um, uh, the effect that that the film has and it's even more remarkable when you one of the notes you receive before the film is released is could you cut out the songs
3: yes yeah pretty much so um it was very that that was a a a tough part on maintaining our, our sense of humor but thankfully we we did and and at the same time as we were maintaining a very firm resistance to being persuaded to do Something wrong, and uh, there were a couple of suggestions in that realm, and we resisted absolutely. And of course, once you've um, I mean, the, the 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 business then and possibly still now sanctifies successful uh, test screenings, mm. and until you've got the film in a state in which it's possible to test screen it and deliver to an audience what they're accustomed to hearing because they're not accustomed to hearing a film with you know, partial sound and, and, uh, and silent scenes that are supposed to be noisy and so on. So you, there, there's a, during the time that you're editing a film and haven't yet shown it to the public, there is a lot of uh, potential for uh, argument about mm. what works and what doesn't. Mm. And only when you've got the film to a standard where you're confident it can make the kind of impact that it should, uh, can you do that? And we did, and it was all, all our ideas turned out to be reinforced by the audience's reactions.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it, I think that's always the okay. case.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss.
2: It was something quite uh, as unique as, as as that that film, because to to hear the logline, you know, at that period when nothing like that had been seen, really, uh, would be difficult. But at the same time, you kind of had to re- uh, race a rival Hollywood production because there was a. There was another film sort of in the works.
3: Yes, yes. It 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 was in the works for a while, so it didn't come out immediately after. It was that was uh To Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. And um it uh yeah, it came and it it went. I I think that uh, the film I, I think that Priscilla by then had kind of established itself in a in a universe of one, basically.
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely so what um following the the success of priscilla your position in in the australian film industry was somewhat you know was was solidified and you know you had yeah. several films at your back um how did how did you um d- go about sort of choosing projects to 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 continue with and to and to further
3: i just decide what i what i feel i'd like to do next and then set about trying to do it. Right. It's, um, it's a very primitive, borderline, crude philosophy because um, usually, well, certainly these days, which is where, where life is much more corporate and um, producers seem to uh, proliferate everywhere you look, um, it's probably a little more difficult. But I, I, I just, I, I kind of can only plow one field at a time, really. And mm. um, and uh, that's what I did. And, and the, the film that I wanted to do afterwards, which I was approached about, was a, a movie called um, Heaven's Burning. Um, I think basically I wanted to work my way around all the deserts in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <and>, uh, <laughs> That was a different that was a different desert and this time it was Russell Crowe and Yuki Kuda. And then I went back to a different desert for Scion Sunset, which was um the the first film directed by the the well known actor in Australia, John Paulson. So I I, I became our King of the Desert briefly, but I, I just couldn't I, I I just was looking for getting deeper and deeper into into the country i think and mm. and trying to i don't know trying to find out how Australia worked
2: and of course with heavens burning you you're, you're back working again with uh, russell crow but here the the relationship begins to sour um specifically in post in when you're doing the publicity for the film
3: Yes, yeah yeah no it was yeah, it was fine before I mean the my my um, conviction is that the the earlier you meet in people's lives um, the more likely you are to have a, a you know a good relationship or a long one because um, well there's more time in which to have one, but also you in doing so you meet at a time before your lives have become, more complicated, mm. and therefore you more open to each other. And um, with Russell on, on The Crossing, that was very much the case. We were all kind of finding each other for the first time. But By the time he did Heaven's Burning, he had made uh, several American movies, uh, the Quick and the Dead, and I think Virtuosity, and he had, um, he had just finished uh, L.A. Confidential. Uh, He had agreed to do Heaven's Burning before he started L.A. Confidential. And I think by the time he finished L.A. Confidential, um, he was already getting offers to do uh, American pictures, which uh, would have been to his his benefit, probably. But we needed him for our film, and, mm. and he had agreed to be in it and so on. So um, he did. I mean, he just, you know, he, he, he came exactly when he was supposed to. But it was, it, yeah, it was a difficult experience for him, I think, because he, he was probably speaking to his agent most days and hearing about what it was that they wanted him for next and so on. And for us, it was difficult just because I, I think, you know, his i mean his professionalism was was unswerving but his um i think his his heart was kind of pining for what uh, what he'd left behind the the the, the so called falling out uh well it was a falling out really it was was simply that he he was at a time when when our film needed um, his support he was quite kind of muted about it and i understand why uh, and uh, i accept why but it was a a, a great irritant at the time
2: mm, yeah you kind of want him to be on a publicity sort of at least at least not doing any harm to the movie at least not yeah. uh, dismissing yeah. it oh. yeah
3: yeah and i don't know i mean these are these are uh, complaints that i heard from from you know the distributors so it wasn't mm. I, I i wasn't present i just knew that it wasn't right, and that it um, it was uh, diminishing us. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, these things happen, and uh, he went on, as we all know, to to a fantastic series of performances. Um, uh, some of them really exceptional. Yeah,
2: yeah absolutely. He's—I mean, I, one of the his films, which isn't as as celebrated as I feel it should be, and one of his performances, best performances, is uh, in Michael Mann's *The Insider*. I think that that film is. Oh, um... yeah.
3: Well, that that kind of lit lit the the touch paper, as it were. It was um, it was remarkable because he he was transformed. I mean, mm. and, and he he felt as if he belonged in that kind of film as as indeed he did in 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 LA Confidential and in what he did, you know, for several years after after that.
2: And um, so you go on, and you're making you make a series of of films which are have varied success. You know, there are some which uh, which which are greeted by the public with more success than others. It's fair to say. Yeah. Um, uh Siam Sunset with Lionel Linus Roach, Eye of the Beholder with uh, Young Ewan McGregor and Ashley Judd just before. Yeah. I think that's done about the same time as Phantom Menace, just before the uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi.
3: Yeah, he, he came out here um, not that long
2: after to to do it. And then you you get to Chopper, which I, I think is a sort of fascinating uh, film that you're involved with, because it, it sort of represents maybe a new... I don't know, maybe I, I don't... I, I'm not confident in saying this, because I don't know enough about the Australian film uh, environment, but it feels like Andrew Dominic comes on as a, a sort of new wave of talents, you know? There's, there's He's coming on, David My Show is coming on a little bit later, and, and suddenly you've got a real energy, uh, again, returning to sort of Australian film.
3: Yes, I, um, I'm always looking for things that come alive in my imagination, and Chopper did. And, and when I met uh, Andrew, that uh, reinforced it because I could see that what he aspired to do was different from a conventional crime movie. I mean he he had a way of uh, describing Chopper and describing the things he did and the reasons that he might do something unexpected um was just yeah I, I it's. It, <sighs> It, it's curious how, with films, you you really have to spend anything between a few months and a few years, and the only things you can really devote yourself to are the things where you can kind of anticipate that the journey is worth making. It, you have to. It, it's not that you're prescient about exactly how it's going to turn out. All you know is that the ride is one that uh, engenders curiosity and uh just demands your attention and that's the the barometer really for for anyone who isn't doesn't make decisions simply opportunistically
2: as a producer was it some was it in any way sort of dispiriting to see these great talents who you work with in Australia then sort of get picked up by you know go off to Hollywood and make you know and and uh and make great work uh but but kind of it's almost like you're a feeder club in uh, that Manchester United <laughs> keep keep taking your best players at the end of every season <laughs> <laughs>
3: No, because i I know how the world works right. and the world works on on expanding your universe within it yeah. <laughs> and so it's it follows that people will at the very least consider opportunity when it when it's merited. If I, you know, were offered the assassination of Jesse James, um, and I had,
2: uh,
3: you know, Andrews' uh, visual talent. I would have said yes as
2: well. Absolutely, yeah. That's one of my favourite films. <laughs> I'm not, yeah. not going to, I'm not going to complain about that at all.
3: Yeah. Well, as a, as a, as a, as an admirer of of Terrence Malick, as I know you to be, it's, um, it's, it's very, um, you know. Malikian
2: yeah yeah I've, I, I apparently again okay, this is my little bit of insider Terence Malik knowledge apparently Malik gave notes to Andrew about the um oh, uh, yeah. about Jesse James about the assassination of Jesse James and the note was lose the voiceover <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not joking over. <laughs> which is which is sort of like it, it might come as a surprise but his his notes to collaborators were always kind of make, don't make a terrence malick film i i make the terrence malick film you make you make something else
3: yes <laughs> yeah but it's uh, anyway it's a beautiful film and um and i you know i can understand why it had limited commercial success but um it's just a, a kind of it's it just seems boundary free that the mm. boundaries are just those created entirely by its makers and none of them are created by artificial considerations
2: and in this period you're, you even though you're obviously you're based in in australia you're you're, you're traveling a lot you're um uh, you know, you're you're going to festivals. You're going. You're taking films to festivals. You're taking films around the world to to get financing and to and to set up projects. This this, this seems also to be sort of like one of the themes of your book is that you're constantly trying to balance your your personal life, your family life, your children, uh, and your uh, and and your you know your projects. Your the the artists who you're trying to to you know bring forth their vision.
3: Yeah, it, it's a it's a tightrope walk that you know in advance is going to be one. And the most important thing is 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 not to be unsettled by it. I mean, so much energy goes into lament and regret in what we do. And but if you pay attention to your family and you pay attention to jobs that need to be done. There is a, a a kind of surprising symmetry and rightness about what you choose to do at at that moment. I, I've never found it uh, troublesome at all. I just thought whatever needs to be done, that's my job, should get done,
0: mm. and
3: that's that's it really. I, I I find it very difficult to discuss producing. Um, for that reason, because I have a very simple-minded approach to it, which is if it needs doing, make sure it happens. Here.
2: Mm, yeah, the way to Moscow is to go to Moscow. Precisely. Looking at the Australian film industry now, how how do you feel about it? How do you feel the uh, you know the, the present state of affairs is?
3: Well, I I think that it's it, it it's adventurous. Um, at times. I mean, it, it's a... It, it, Australia has always produced uh, a, a number of films every year that really um, take you by surprise. Right. Um, I mean, I, I always remember in in Cannes in 1996, seeing the first film by uh, the, the sadly late Shirley Barrett. Uh, Love Serenade, and I felt I was in the presence of something I'd never seen before. The the elements were familiar, the the setting, the the pitching of the lead performances, uh, its eccentricity, its its rhythm, and so on. But I was just so taken by its its, its incredible charm and good nature, and and also, it's it's darkness, you know, mm-hmm.
0: um,
3: and that has always seemed to me the prototype of the kind of film that I would cherish uh, more in, in in from Australians. I, I realize, you know, that not everybody wants to make that film, and that they will want to make some other kind of film, but. What um what I what I always champion is 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 idiosyncrasy and and something that is kind of all eclipsingly personal.
2: How do you think that compares to the British film industry that you of course, you know, you were instrumental in 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 shaping to some degree in the in the in the seventies and eighties. How does that do you, do you do you because it does seem to me that what you just said is absolutely true that the, every year we have a uh, we have a, a handful of Australian films which are really striking and surprising and, and you know and and trans and, tra- and and transfer you know they they go international it, with British films I sort of always feel a little bit less that there seems to be more of them and they're more there's a broader range perhaps but those films that really stick out sort of don't seem to be, or maybe I'm just, it's the contempt of familiarity.
3: Well, it's also the fact that we, we don't see everything that comes mm. out of the UK, and, and you probably don't either. And what we do see uh, naturally affects our perception of of the whole thing. I suspect there are are, nooks and crannies where where remarkable things are are, are being done there. But like you, I don't see much evidence of it. The the films that I see feel that, well, historically, of course, there's been a much longer uh, relationship between the UK and the US. So Mm. the American actors, for example, would favor... Probably a, a, a so-called quirky British film um, over its Australian counterpart. I know Australia is, you know, is, is a rising star, or so we we hear year after year. But I, I think the the as I say, the history and the geography of the US and the UK means that um, there is a, a, a much more fluid relationship there and yes i I think the the further away you are from um the availability of instant star power uh, the more significant and and uh, important it is for you to concentrate on doing original work Mm. that's it, we're always struck by that and the more films we see the more struck we are by original work you
2: know? yeah absolutely I think as well in this time of television uh where there are so many more stories out there being told in so many more original and interesting ways kind of mm. cinema has to up its game it has to you know it, it, otherwise it will just become a fairground of franchises.
3: Yeah, I'm also a little disturbed. Uh, actually, delete a little. Uh, increasingly disturbed by the absurd number of producers on, mm-hmm. on film. It really is uh, absurd. No matter how small the film, um, it it just the the producing credits are endless. Mm-hmm. And so, I wonder, unless everybody has a completely different role. How many people can make up a production team, or whether they they actually ever meet? Possibly they have, you know, Zoom calls going in you know thirty different directions, but um, it's I, I can't. Uh, I, I know that you know people who put money into films now expect uh, such acknowledgement and so on. But why can't it be, why can't it just describe what it was, which was financed by? I, I just, I find it remarkable uh, and and rather dispiriting that you get one director, but you get up to 45
2: producers <laughs> of different <laughs> some of whom never meet <laughs> oh absolutely i think there's a law in uh, hollywood that if steven spielberg <laughs> walks past you your project yeah. is executive produced by steven spielberg yeah, at that point it's
3: so bizarre and um i know if, you know historically film has always moved in phases but this is a phase of, of serious overcrowding in the uh, in the production department
2: so having written these two the two volumes of your of your memoirs what 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 surprised you the most sort of looking back um did did you have any sort of surprises of of things that you hadn't really realized but now looking back in this way it um it stood out
3: no no i i um what occurred to me was that i did Pretty much everything that I wanted to do, and what a, an extraordinary thing to be able to say and feel when your stamina is diminishing a little and your desire to do it repeatedly is more questioned by you. And so it's um, it's it's curious. I, um, I I can't think of anything that I would have done any differently <laughs> this is a sign of either wisdom or comprehensive ignorance
2: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. how do how the, the two often look incredibly similar
3: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it would appear <laughs> but um, yeah i just you know i i i, I I search in vain. I, I'd, I'd love to. I, I wish I had been prepared for that because there is there is a, a you know a potentially great answer to that. I, I think my favorite one. I can't remember the film in question, but a director was asked once um, what he would do if he had his whole life to live over again, and without hesitation, he said. I do everything exactly the same except I wouldn't make have made and then named the film.
2: <laughs> right, right. There's just one film that's film, that's, that... that's right.
3: Yeah. But it was um it felt quite prepared and um I would hesitate to um to single out anything that I I hadn't wanted to do because I wanted to do them.
2: Yeah, you wanted to do them for the right reasons, no matter how they turned out.
3: Yeah. Yeah, well, and I was confident that they would turn out in a way that was, um, whilst not exactly the way I envisaged them, in a way that, in some cases, was was even more interesting.
2: And what about now? Have you got any projects that you are sort of um, dabbling in or, or putting putting together?
3: No, I'll know it when I when I see it. But right now, I'm um, I'm completely. Uh, concerned with um, making sure that, you know, my books are read and that my neglected family is uh, given much more of my attention in the form of a, a holiday we're going to take imminently, and that, you know, three, four decades of continuous work are rewarded by... You know, variety and pleasure and uh, and care.
2: And you still, uh, you're you're, st- you're still. It takes me back to the very beginning of your first memoir, where you're going to the cinema in in Spain to watch your to, to escape. You you still pop in the cinema for that for that same feeling.
3: Yeah, well, we have we live very near a cinema in in Sydney, the uh, the Randwick Grits, which is. Um, Absolutely extraordinary for me, whose whose boundaries are, are boundless, because it shows um, films uh, of all nationalities. You know, you know, it'll show something that hardly anybody wants to see once a day. So mm. just to make sure that that whoever does want to see it goes to see it, you know, or, or has the the option of doing so, and it's um, at any given time. It's showing two or three things that that uh, that interest me. It's an amazing blessing to have the proximity of a cinema, as one of the uh, proximity of a good cinema uh, that knows how to program well, in one's uh, you
2: know roaming territory. Yeah, in one's vicinity, absolutely. So like you, you need a good bakery, good butchers, and a great and a great cinema, and you and a good bookshop. And a good bookshop, of course. Yes, yes. That's my That's my village, sorted.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs> but listen, Al, thank you so much for uh, talking to me once more. Uh, it's been a wonderful conversation over these two two conversations, really. Um, I've really enjoyed reading your books. I encourage everybody to, to do so. Uh, it's just a, a fascinating life. Real privilege to talk to you.
3: A great pleasure for me, too.